The show is Stand to Reason, friends. Uh, I'm Greg Coakley, your host, and uh, welcome to it and to me. Um, I finished last hour talking to the same guy a long time, and poor Brandon was left on hold. I promised him I'd get right to him, and then all of a sudden he disappeared uh, between hours, but fortunately he called back. So let's just go right to Brandon in Tacoma, Washington. What happened to you, Brandon? I don't know what happened. My call dropped or something, but I figured I'd call back. Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad you did because we totally freaked on this end. We just felt so bad. We lost you. And I told, I said that I was going to take your call right off. So here we are. How can I help, Brandon? Tacoma, Washington, right? Yeah, Tacoma, Washington. Okay. Yeah, I just just want to call. I had a question about um, kind of doubts in general. I I tend I tend to find myself struggling with doubts quite often, um, and I kind of a two part question with that. My first part of the question is that um, I I always have this doubt that I'm worried that um, that I'm just leaning on Christianity as a crutch because I know that I need it in my life to, to, for it to make sense for my life to make sense for anything to make sense. I know I need Christianity to be true. I, know I need uh, Jesus to be the Son of God. I, I need all of it uh, for anything to make sense around me. It's so like I at times get worried that I'm telling myself something that I don't fully believe just to help make sense of my life and and I and I want to so bad and I go to church and I've I've been baptized but sometimes I struggle with the doubt and um my my second part of that was I know in the Bible it says that um if you know you need to believe with your whole heart and I my question is with that is if I'm having doubts, is that me not believing with my whole heart? Okay, where where are you citing right now? When you say believe with your whole heart, where are you citing? I, I can't remember the I can't remember the exact um verse, but I thought it was along the lines of I think it's in Jer I think it's in Jeremiah, actually. Jeremiah twenty nine, and I think there was a very particular circumstance that was being addressed by Jeremiah in that passage. It's often quoted, but you will find me when you seek and search for me with all your heart. What, what, uh, so that sounds like that's an extreme kind of um, requirement, and I actually think it applied in that case because Israel had been so rebellious and made a lot of false moves, disingenuous moves to following God that God's saying, okay, now you're going to get you're going to get whacked here by Nebuchadnezzar, and he's carting you off, this Jeremiah telling him, and he said, you're going to come back to me when you seek me with all your heart, when you get serious about it. So that was a a separate circumstance. We do not have language like that in the New Testament. We have the the guy who says to Jesus with a demon-possessed son, Jesus, if if you can help, will you please help me? And Jesus said, if I can, all things are possible to him who believe. And, he, and the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. And then Jesus responds by delivering his son. Now, that's a very vivid example of the grace that Jesus gives to those who are struggling. And it says a, a kind of a smoking wick he will not put out. This is an Old Testament reference to the Messiah. And a bent reed he will not break off. So people that are are suffering and doubtful and and stumbling about and uncertain, Jesus isn't going to slam you for that. The fact is, every person has doubts. C.S. Lewis said, there are times when Christianity seems very unlikely to me. He wrote this as a Christian. 
He said, but then I remember when I was an atheist, there were times that atheism seemed very unlikely too. We all go through this. The way Lewis described it was, since we're amphibious beings, we're spiritual and we're physical, we have, again, his language, we have one foot in eternity and one foot in time. The best we can do is go up and down, up and down. He called that the law of undulation, you know, and it's just the reality of our experience that we go up and down and up and down, okay? Our emotions drive us in different directions. And he was very distrustful of emotions, Lewis was. Okay, what mattered to him was the reasons. And so this is what I come back to. So the first thing I'm saying is that you struggle with doubts, okay? That's not unusual, all right? Everybody does that one time or another. And God's not mad at you. He's not, he's not requiring an impossible standard of faith in order for you to be rescued and benefit from Jesus. Okay, those are the first two things. Got that? Yep, got that. Okay, good, Brandon. Okay, now I want to talk about Jesus being a crutch. There's a there's a um, a tactic that I have in the in the 10th anniversary edition. I call moving toward the objection. And sometimes instead of kind of pushing away from and trying to nullify the objection, you move towards it. If somebody says to me, well, Jesus is a crutch, my response is, he sure is. Of course he is. Crippled people need crutches. If I am the way the Bible describes me to be, a sinner in need of forgiveness, then I need the one who can rescue me from my sin and give me forgiveness. I need him. This is central to the Christian message. Now, it may be that you're thinking, well, I'm only believing to have a psychological lift, all right? And, yes, exactly. Okay, exactly. all right. Well, I have a couple thoughts on that. One of them is, if you feel you're getting a psychological lift, what is it you're getting a lift from? How is this message lifting you? So I guess I'll make it short. I've been a Christian for probably about four years now, and okay. before I was, nothing made sense to me. I I was always wrestling with existential thoughts, like why am I here? What the heck is going on? Uh huh. And then I, and then I started learning about Christianity. My uncle brought me around and taught me about it, and then it just kind of I was like, oh, this all okay. Now that makes total sense. It makes and total it, sense. I agree with you, by the way. So when it gives you a lift, I mean it's not. It sounds like first you're saying it gives you a lift in the sense that it's making sense out of confusion. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Okay, good. But what is part of the confusion it's making sense of? Just why why we're here, and, and uh, why we're here is the biggest one, but the sec- the other one is, I would have so many questions where I'd think about, like, you know, like, what is this place? What, you know, where are we? But then when I when I became a Christian— I realized that, that there's no answer that that a man on earth could tell me that would that would make sense. But I just know that that God is in control and He started this place and He's and He's uh, He's there for me. And I, right. And it, it, so I just, it was like this massive weight lifted off my shoulders, thinking, okay, I don't have to wrestle with these questions anymore. It's not my problem. Okay, so um, that's an important step. Something is missing so far in your explanation, and it has to do with guilt and sin and forgiveness. Is that part of? Is that part of the detail of of your conviction about Jesus? 
Yes, absolutely. And, and that came, and this may sound bad, but that almost came secondary. I, I wasn't even thinking of that when it when it first happened. I thought, well, you know, I thought, oh, I'm a good person. I do good things. I'm nice to people. And then, you know, as I grew, I thought, oh, I'm a pretty <laughs> a pretty bad person. It's like yeah. the rest of us. And, okay. So this is interesting because, um, and I just want to play your own words back to you, and I hope this is encouraging, okay? Um, whatever it is that you believed before, made no sense of your world. Then you learned more about Christianity and Jesus, and what you heard began to make sense out of the world. Now, to me, that's not a crutch. What that is is an explanation of reality that makes sense, all right? Why is the water boiling? That's confusing. Oh, it's because I have that flame underneath the water when it reaches 212 degrees at Fahrenheit at sea level, then the water's going to boil. Now that makes sense to me, all right? All you've done is found a way, an explanation that makes sense of the world. That's the first step, okay? But you also—so that's not a crutch. That's That's a way of understanding how the world works, okay? But then you found out something else. You used to think, you're an okay guy, and then you start realizing, well, that's not actually true. Just setting aside Jesus for a moment, you realize something's wrong, and this is where the crutch comes in. Now you're realizing that you are wounded in some way, you're broken in some way, okay? You're crippled in some way. The crippling, the wound, the brokenness is moral. That's what you're aware of. Now what happens is you get more detail about Christianity, and you realize Jesus can fix that. Okay, he can be the crutch for your brokenness. If you're broken, if you're crippled, if you're lame, having a crutch to help you is a good thing, not a bad thing. The point I'm making is you are aware of your need independent of Jesus satisfying the need. When you find out that Jesus satisfies the need by providing forgiveness for your sin against God, well, you can call that a crutch, but that's not something bad. I, that's something good. I got, a, I got a new hip on my right side. January 4th, I got a brand new hip. Guess what? I'm doing a lot better now than I was in the fall, hobbling around on a bad hip. I got fixed. I didn't need a crutch anymore because I got a new hip. But getting the new hip is a good thing. It's not like, oh, you're so you're so weak, Greg, you had to get a new hip. Yeah, because my my hip old hip was bad. And in the same way, we are bad. We know this, and then God provides a way to deal with that. First forgiveness through Jesus, and then he gives us a new hip. He takes away the debt, the pain, if you will, and he gives us a new hip. That's the new life we have in Christ. Nothing wrong with that. He meets an actual need that we have. So if the substance of your doubt, does this make sense so far, Brandon? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Then if the substance of your doubt is, well, Jesus is a crutch, my answer is, of course he is. That's why we all need him, because we're all broken every one of us. And we know that even apart from knowing Jesus. It isn't like that's just part of the package, so we've got to believe that. We already know that. And actually, that's what you told me. You know, I I used to think I was a great guy, and then I realized, no, not so cool, not so great. And that's identifying the need that you have 
for the kinds of things that Jesus could give. All last fall, I'm hobbling around. My <laughs> my teammates were with me in Denver at a big conference, and there I was, man. I was in misery, hobbling around, and because my hip hurt so badly, and then I got a new hip, and now I'm walking straight, more or less. I still got another hip that's bad, but you see the point. Now yeah. you're walking straight. You got healed. Now, there may be doubts of, of other kinds, but don't. I would encourage you, don't worry about the crutch part. Sometimes people on the outside put that down. And the answer to that is, well, you, 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 the answer to that, Jesus, he is. But everybody has a crutch of some sort or another, something that compensates for their sense of need. Here's the real question. Can your crutch hold you? That's the question. Can your crutch, whatever your crutch is, I'm speaking in general to everybody else, you think Christianity is a crutch. Okay, yeah, it is. Crippled people need crutches. And guess what? You're crippled too. So what's holding you up now? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it a woman? Is it a relationship? If anything that's holding you up right now can be taken away, you're in trouble because you can be flat on your face then. I have a crutch that can't be taken away from me. Jesus. Absolutely. 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 Does that make sense? <clears throat> that, that does make sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of where my issues come from, in general, I'm a very... I get worried easily. I'm, I'm, an, I'm, I'm on the anxious spectrum where I get, I get pretty anxious pretty easily. And, okay. I think, and I think once I became a Christian and I thought, and I found that everything made much more sense to me and that life seemed to get a lot better, I almost got suspicious, like, wait, what's the catch here? You know, what... Well, why does this make so much sense? I need this, and then I, and then I sort of worry about it, and then and I think that's where a lot of it stems from. I mean, I can worry about anything and everything. Yeah. And, uh, well, look at there. There are plenty of things in life to worry about, and it's kind of hard to maintain the proper balance. But uh, but I, I think you know you, you get you get other doubts, other things come in, and we can talk about them. All right. Um, the reason the, the 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 way I describe the the most expansive reason for believing Christianity, Christian theism, and I've said this before, it's the best explanation for the way things are. It's the best explanation for the way things are. Now, this is called explanatory power. It's what scientists do to figure out which explanation fits the circumstance they're trying to make sense out of. And if your explanation explains it really well, then chances are pretty good that your explanation is accurate. And that's all we're doing here. And this is kind of what you told me earlier. Well, you know, I, I, it just began to make sense. It, it all seemed to fit together. And I agree with you. It does all seem to fit together for good. It, it just makes sense of the way we experience reality and also our deepest intuitions about the nature of what's real. So um, I'll just say, Brandon, Next time you have doubts about anything, if you get something else come up, give me a call. We'll talk. I will. I will. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate all your help. I always do. Thank you. Yeah, oh, you're so welcome. And we've talked before, haven't we? We have. You got a good memory. <laughs> well, we it was just it was quite a while ago, but we did. And okay. I told you. I said, now I got your number. All right. Yeah, you got my number. You got my office hours too. Four to six on Tuesdays. All right. All right. All righty. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll call back. All right. Take care now. Bye bye now. That was great. Incidentally, I just had a flash. 
uh, this being our 30th anniversary of Stand to Reason, and actually it's not so much related to that, but in September I'll be 50 years in Christ. So this discussion about the crutch that I just had with Brandon, I don't know if you care about this, but I'm just going to share it because it's my show so I can say anything I want. Fifty, Almost 50 years ago, 50 years ago, 50, 49 years ago this summer, let's put it that way, because it was my first summer as a Christian. I became a Christian on September 28, 1973, and in the summer of 1974, after spending four or five months living in this Christian community called the Jesus Christ Light and Powerhouse in Westwood Village, right off the UCLA campus, um, my discipler, Craig Englert, invited me to be part of a summer outreach project in Waikiki Beach. And it was a 10-week-long thing, covered the whole summer, and I thought, cool, you know, suffering for the Lord. Somebody's got to do it. And so I signed up. As part of that outreach, though, we had a night, we had jobs, summer jobs during the day, and then we had evening events, and we had training, and we had uh, outreach on the beach, and we shared the four spiritual laws, and we talked to people about Jesus. It was Jesus movement time going on there, a lot of cool things happening, and uh, um, it was a great learning experience. But we also had, I think it was on Wednesday night, a house meeting. So when we would talk to people on the street, we'd give them a card. We say, here, this card has the location and the time, and Wednesday nights, and for the rest of the summer, we're always having this house meeting. Come by, and we'll have some music, and we'll have a little message, and and uh, we'll have some, you know, pizza or something, you know, some treats of some sort, and uh, you'll learn more about Jesus if you want to come by. So that was kind of our method, part of our program there. But they always had a short message. Uh, somebody would give a little 10 to 15 minutes um, evangelistic message, and I was chosen to do one of those sessions. And in the session that I was chosen to do, I don't remember everything I said. It was 49 years ago almost now, but I do remember talking about the crutch. And what I said was, everybody's got a crutch. Same thing I just told Brandon. Everybody's got a crutch. The real question is, can your crutch hold you? And if whatever you're leaning on as a crutch can be taken away, you're in trouble. The same thing I told Brandon. Isn't that amazing? I, it isn't like I've been using that illustration every year for the last 49 years. It just, that happened way back then. How could I remember that? I can't remember my daughter's names. But I just, it just came back to me. And uh, it was, I think, a good point then, and it's still a good point 49 years later. If whatever it is that you're leaning on, and everyone is leaning on something because we're broken people, we have needs. It turns out we're not the master of our own fates. We are not the captains of our own souls. We're contingent. We're dependent. And we're in trouble in many ways. And we do our best to hang in there and, you know, whatever. And I'm not taking anything away from anybody who does that. However, it's not enough. Because the deepest problem is the brokenness of our souls by sin that we continue to pursue, which makes us guilty, which is why we feel guilt. We feel guilty because we are guilty. And the answer to guilt is not denial. 
the answer to Gilda's forgiveness, and this is where Jesus comes in, and he is the crutch that will hold you. He is the one that will never leave you. He is the one that will solve the problem. He will do the job. And that comes all the way in from 49 years ago. Imagine that. All right, let's take a break, and I'll get back uh, with uh, with more for you. Calls, uh, open mic calls, commentary, all coming up on Stand to Reason. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Some Christians and many former Christians are promoting a trendy approach to doubting and questioning your faith called deconstruction. Is it the same as reforming your faith? Well, it turns out there's one key element that distinguishes between the two. Find out what that is in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schliemann. Look for it on iTunes, Spotify, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. All right, friends, um, as you know, I am heading out of town for a few weeks here uh, to our place in northern Wisconsin. Maybe I'll even post on on my Facebook some pictures, things that have. I used to do this all the time, and it was really easy to take the picture, push the button on my phone, and off it went. I just got out of practice. Now there are other things that are posted, my team posts on there, but maybe I'll just do some of that here. But in my absence, I want to let you know about a very important thing that's happened. You have an unbelievable opportunity to actually talk directly with the inimitable J. Warner Wallace. 
Okay. Yes, I mean the cold case detective, as in cold case Christianity, as in God's crime scene, as in forensic faith, as in uh, what's the recent one? Uh, a person of interest, as in another movie. A movie. Well, he was in a movie. He was in God's Not Dead too, right? Okay. And um, and he's doing another book now. And yes, that same Jay Warner Wallace, um, one of my closest friends, and I think. Um, just for my my money, so to speak, I would rather listen to Jim Wallace than anyone else that I know give talks on apologetics. This guy is like uh, non-parial. There's no parallel. He's amazing, and he's going to be filling in for me on May 23rd. Okay, that's, what, two weeks from today? Okay, here's the number, 855-243-9975. That's 855-243-9975. Nine nine seven five, and I'm just saying he was going to do two weeks for me. Uh, he had to cancel some family thing, whatever. Bummer for me. I had to do an extra show off the schedule. All right, fine. But he's going to do one show. You only get one shot at him. This guy knows everything. He, he, I mean, it's amazing. I've been along around longer than he has, but he's just this guy's mind just sucks up information. He organizes it incredibly. He communicates it powerfully, and he's got all these cop stories as illustrations of these points. So you don't want to miss an opportunity to talk to Jay Warner Wallace, May twenty third. Mark your calendar. Get ready for the call. Uh, ready to get in in the queue and give Jim a call, 855-243-9975. If you're outside the U.S., call anyway, 562-424-8229. That's the number there. I mean, heck, if I get some time off, I might call him and ask him a question. Jim's really good, and he really knows his stuff. In fact, I remember the first time he filled in for me many years ago, over 10 years ago now, and uh, and and I thought Jim was as I listened to him. I was in San Jose, California, and I was doing an event up there on a Sunday. Uh, that's when I broadcast the live show from KBRT Studios down in Santa Ana, or right there by John Wayne Airport. What is that? Costa Mesa. And um, so Jim filled in for the first time. So I I got my phone and and I I was in the airport, San Jose Airport, ready to come back. He's on the air and I'm listening to him. And I said like I had an OMG moment. I said this guy's fabulous. He's better than anyone I've ever had fill in for me. And I've had other professionals fill in when I was out of town. And Jim was the best. So he's going to be on May 23rd. And I hope you call him, treat him nice, give him your hardest questions. He'll be up to the task. Trust me on this. All right. Now, as I was driving to um, the studio today, the office, in which is our studio, I, uh, I saw a billboard. And the billboard was promoting a, 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 a current Amazon Prime, I think it's a series or something. Because every time I go to Amazon Prime, um, that's one of the first things comes up in the queue. You know, you get this whole picture of all these thumbnail prints of movies and stuff that they're offering. And uh, I can't remember the name of it. But in this particular billboard, you have the really good-looking, tough-looking guy and the really good-looking, tough-looking gal back-to-back pointing nine mils in two different directions, or maybe they're 45 cal, I don't know, but they're guns and they're shooting at people and killing people, okay? 
And I, I just made note of this advertisement because there is something about what's happening in our culture that troubles me. And it's actually reflected in a lot of areas. I mean, there's something, obviously, a lot of things trouble me in the culture, but I just want to zero in on this expression, this characteristic, or this this particular concern that has a, a, how do I want to say this? There's a big concern that manifests itself in different ways in the culture, and this is one manifestation of that, okay? That is how Hollywood depicts women. Now, it used to be that Hollywood depicted women in a way that was what many people would consider inappropriate now because they were sex objects, okay? Um, that's all shifted around. Uh, actually, it hasn't all shifted around because the heroines in these movies um, wielding the 9 mil or the Glocks or the, you know, whatever, they're, the ARs or whatever, they're beautiful and sexy. So that hasn't gone away, but they're doing something else. They're killing people, left and right, wantonly, given the context of their story. Maybe they're military people, maybe they're, um, maybe they're um, new cops or, or something like that, uh, or maybe it's some other kind of spy adventure, but these girls just let fly. And they let guys fly, too. In other words, when they encounter a bunch of hoods or a bunch of bums or a bunch of bad guy spy types or whatever, these guys look like four or five guys look like linebackers, professional linebackers. And this little skinny little thing that's beautiful and, you know, weighs about 102 pounds, she's throwing these guys left and right. You know the drill. It happens all the time. And when necessary... She's pulling out her nine mil and bang, bang, tap, tap to the head, tap, tap to the heart, wiping them all out. Um, in fact, you know, I, I, I make comments about this on when I'm watching things. It bothers me to see this pattern. So I'll say something when we're watching a movie. My 18-year-old said the other night, well, you just don't like strong women. Now, this isn't true. And I told her, you, you, you misunderstand me, honey. I didn't get to a long thing about it because I didn't think it would be productive, but I just said, no, you misunderstand me. And it turns out that I have strong women around me all the time. They're fabulous. I have colleagues that are strong women. Uh, and I have coworkers that are strong women. I worked under a strong women, woman for many years over at Hope Chapel in Hermosa Beach, and uh, she, she was my boss. I had no difficulty with that at all. And even in movies, Ripley is my hero. You know, Ripley from Alien and from Aliens and from Alien Return, or all five of them. Ripley's in all of them. What was her name? The actress's name always oh, at heart. Amy's Sigourney Weaver. Oh, she's, she's my hero. I love her. Um, in fact, in the second one, Aliens, she was rescuing that little girl. Remember that? And she gets into that big machine-type thing where she moves with her hands, and it's like it's like a, a machine coat of armor, and you know, and she's doing, she's battling the alien in this in this thing. You know, <laughs> she's got her hand grips and everything. And she's wiping them out. That's great. I have no problem with strong women. Here's what I have a problem with: it's Hollywood making women into men 
and men into women. Now, this has been going on long before all of this transgender stuff took off. The transgender stuff took off right after Obergefell, same-sex marriage, 2015, Supreme Court. I thought, it's over with. Now this will calm down. No. Then they took a, a molehill and made a mountain out of it. The small sliver of people that were really suffering from gender dysphoria, characteristically those who are boys between three and five years old, something like that, real early. Now it's a massive number, especially of teenage girls. And according to, you know, if you believe the narrative, mass a large percentage of people are just totally gender confused. I think this is contrived. I think it's a I think something's going on, but it's not gender confusion. It is confusion that's fomented by a culture and I think there's a spiritual dimension to it which I'll get to in a minute. But the this is one characterization of this other thing of making women into men and I think subsequently making men into women feminizing men. Oh, this is the whole thing about toxic masculinity, you know. You know, I'm reading a biography of C.S. Lewis. It's titled Jack. And uh, one of the things that I'm learning about Lewis is he was a he was a classicist. I mean, he loved myth because there were certain values that were promoted in ancient mythic styles. And those were honor, courage, willingness to suffer for a good cause, all, all of these these classic virtues and chivalry, all of that. These are all things that are dissed completely in our culture. And something else has replaced it. It's the Amazon woman. And we see this everywhere. Um, the fact that women can run things, that doesn't bother me. But this is getting shoved in our face. And one particular aspect of it captured on this, on this uh, billboard this morning is especially troubling to me. Because you just think of this. There are exceptions to this, but characteristically, are women in movies, TV shows, whatever, are they doing anything motherly anymore? Where do you see women? Now, now there may be sitcoms, obviously, that's situation comedies, where you have families in certain circumstances, and so you've got moms and dads. Of course, dad's the idiot in all of these. Dad is the complete idiot. The children are the smartest, or maybe mom is, but certainly not dad. He's the bottom of the pile. He, even in commercials— you have a mini blind commercial, and there's dad all kind of stuck in all the blind. How does he get his arms and his head in the mini blinds? Well, that's the way they're de depicting dad. Okay. Who's the smart one? It's mom. Okay. Um, and, but apart from the sitcoms, in the movies, the gals are front and center, even in these deadly professions where they're killing people. Okay. In other words, they're not doing motherly things in movies anymore. They are doing manly things. And my concern is that Hollywood is changing, as I mentioned, women into men. This is the influence it's having. And by the way, when women become more manly, they become less womanly. And my concern is that God made males and female for a reason. They complement each other, and they have different natures, and they excel in different things. And the things that men excel in doing also is consistent with their physical stature. Men are the fighters and the protectors. Mothers are the, the 
um, uh, the pr- protectors in the sense of fighting. Mothers are the protectors in the sense of nurturing. And look at if you're you're a, 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 a father and a mother, you know the difference I'm talking about. The dad wants to push him out. Get out there in the world. You know, fight the battles. Don't be afraid. You know, man up kind of thing. And what mom's covering and protecting and nurturing and taking care of them. But see, this isn't, that's human nature. And God made people that way for a reason, because this is the way human beings flourish. I'm not saying women can't have professions. I am not saying they can't be bosses and have corporations, be presidents or whatever. I'm saying that they have a certain nature, that they are best suited for certain kinds of things, and human and males have a different kind of nature, and they are best suited for other kinds of things. All right? But I saw this really played out, this problem, in a, in a Tom Cruise, Jack Reacher movie. I think it was the second one. And in this movie, there is a female counterpart. Now, I can't remember all the details of the movie, but Jack Reacher is this tough guy, and he shoots people. And uh, he's a tough, good guy. He's trying to find bad people and shoot them. So he's got another gal with him. Maybe she's a cop, too. I don't know. But she's kind of his female counterpart. And you know what she is? She's a tough guy who shoots people. And all of these girls talk like sailors. They use all the bad language that the guys use, right? I was taught you don't use that kind of language in general, and especially in the presence of a woman. But now it's all used all the time. Okay. And here's the deal. There was a young girl that was involved in this particular movie, like she was at risk or they're trying to rescue her or something, and they got her, and now she's in their possession, but the circumstances are tough. Somebody needs to take care of this girl. And, And Tom Cruise, the Jack Reacher character, looks at his counterpart, who's the female, also toting a big gun, and she says, no way, you're not going to do this to me. How dare you? In other words, he, the look was, he's assuming, you're the woman, you're the best suited to take care of this girl, and she's saying, are you kidding me? I'm not falling for those stereotypes. You take care of her. Okay, now you and I both know, in a real-life situation, if there is a child that is vulnerable, both are going to want to protect it, but that mom is going to go right there. I'm sorry, that female is going to go right there and be right arms around protecting, just like Sigourney Weaver playing Ripley protecting that little girl, because that's the motherly instinct to protect in that way. All right. And of course, they can be fierce, too. They can be like, like, uh, you know, Mama Bear. I get it. But it's a different thing they're doing than what the guy is doing. Okay. And here in this movie, they were making this sound like this was treacherous, that the guy would assume that the woman would have any special capability or desire to protect this vulnerable little girl okay and uh and in fact in that whole movie there was it was really clear the woman was trying to outman the guy i'm tougher than you jack reacher i can kill more people than you can i can throw more people over my shoulder than you can i'm tougher than you and that was the competition between them and the whole movie this was not reality she could kill faster and better and more effectively than he could. No, no. In real life, if that situation occurred, you know what would happen. If the child was vulnerable, mom would have gone right there. But that is not the narrative, at least from the doorkeepers of culture, like Hollywood. They, they want to deny reality and remake God's world in their image. Now, I don't think they're working alone. 
because this doesn't work in real life, but this is going on. I think there's something else at play here. I think there's something spiritual in play, too. And this is one example of how this works it out. And just think about this. It is a terrible, traumatic thing to take the life of, of another human being. It is completely contrary, certainly, to the nature of a woman, because a woman isn't the life taker, she's the life giver. Men are stronger physically, and they have the they have the nature that allows them to do that to protect the weak. I'm not saying a woman can't do that. Of course she can do it, and she's done it. Women have done that kind of thing when it was necessary, but it's not their nature. They're the life givers, not the life takers. And even for a man with that capability and the training, like military or policemen, whatever, when they have to unholster their weapon, of course, if you're in military on the line, you're doing this daily for weeks on end. You're taking the life of another person. Guess what happens? This is not easy even for the men. It's traumatic the first time and the second time. They get used to it because they got to do it, and after they do it for a while, guess what? It doesn't get easy in the sense that no big, maybe for some people, but characteristically it's still taking a human life. What they do is they get inured to it, and they get hardened. And then when they come home, they have PTSD, because taking a life is a big deal. Yet here in Hollywood, women are blowing people's brains out left and right and laughing and enjoying it. That is not reality. Okay, talk to any combat veteran. They're going to tell you. Maybe they got used to it. They had to do it routinely. Maybe sometimes they enjoyed it. And by the way, when you watch the movies that are good depictions of this going on, and you see the guys enjoying it, you know something has gone terribly wrong. Why is it then that we're depicting women as doing this all the time, and they're I can, I can kill better than you can kill. Watch me. Got him. Hey, high five. That's not reality. To portray women routinely killing with abandon and even enjoying doing so is complete fiction. Are there exceptions? Yeah, there's exceptions to every rule, every generalization, but I'm talking about reality here. And I think when that kind of action is modeled for young ladies watching this kind of stuff— instead of actions consistent with their nature, killing instead of nurturing, then this is going to have an effect on the next generation of young ladies growing up. They are going to be influenced by this false characterization of what it means to be a woman. And they will be more like a man and less like a woman. And if they're less like a woman, they are going to be less capable to do the kinds of things effectively that women are uniquely gifted to do. And I think that's what these gender wars are all about. It is a—and now I'm getting spiritual. Go to Ephesians 6. Straightforward. I don't mean the—I don't need the armor. The armor is how you protect from something else. Having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm against what? Against the powers and forces of darkness that have schemes— machinations. There's a spiritual scheme by the forces of darkness that are meant to undermine God's created order, which God established so that the human race would flourish. And the devil can't destroy God. 
so he seeks instead to destroy those that bear his image. Mark it. And remember, uh, when Jesus answered a question about marriage in Matthew 19, he started out by saying, and this is you know, divorce and remarriage for any cause or any reason, and he said, have you not read? <laughs> hey, you guys, haven't you read this? In the very beginning, the first chapter of the first book, God made them male and female. When he talks about marriage, he first reminds them of the common sense notion that human beings are binary when it comes to gender, and that makes all the difference. And viva la difference, in my view. It's also good for humanity that there's a difference. And uh, that is the plan for human flourishing that is constantly being undermined by the culture. And I don't think they realize what's going on. They are being manipulated and used by the powers of darkness. You know me. I'm not the kind of guy that's going to find a demon under every bush. That's not my style. It's not my view. It's not my belief. But there are things that are grand designs that are clearly examples of demonic schemes that are destroying image bearers wholesale, and this is one of them. Something to think about. Let's take a break, and I'll come back for your calls after this on Stand to Reason. Did you know Stand to Reason has a YouTube channel? We release a new video each Monday on the topics you care about. Through short, engaging videos, our speakers train you on tactics, offer apologetics tips, answer common theology questions, and address big issues in the world today. Join tens of thousands of other subscribers so you can stay up to date when we release a new video. Just go to youtube.com and search STR videos, all one word, and hit the subscribe button. That's STR videos. Take advantage of this free resource to help you stay informed, encouraged, and equipped as you share your worldview with others. Do you want to become a more knowledgeable Christian ambassador without sitting through a formal course on apologetics? Well, we've made that possible for you through our STR Quick Reference app. Available for free on iTunes and Google Play, the STR Quick Reference app holds a wealth of information summarizing what you need to know on a range of topics. Learn how to defend the faith, see how other worldviews compare to Christianity, and master the biblical view of morality all through short, engaging videos. Before you know it, you'll be well-versed on a number of important apologetics topics. In addition, the Quick Reference app also includes a Bible with text and audio, as well as some featured STR resources, all to enhance your learning experience. The STR Quick Reference app will equip you to engage in thoughtful conversation about the key issues of life from a classical Christian perspective. Visit iTunes or the Google Play Store today and download the STR Quick Reference app. And if you enjoy the app, make sure you give it a five-star review. All right, I have uh, uh, a little piece of information that Amy just gave me, and I did not know about this, but Nancy Piercy has a new book that is being released on June 27th, and it's titled The Toxic War on Masculinity. And the subtitle is How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Now, this sounds like what I was just talking about. The irony is, is the culture's narrative is toxic masculinity. It is men who are toxic 
because they're mas masculine. This, I think, is a total distortion. And it looks like Nancy, once again, is speaking to a, a, a very critical cultural issue. Haven't read the book. I just learned about it. But um, as she does, she's a fabulous writer, and I'm sure that she's done an excellent job here. Just letting you know, you could probably order it on Amazon in advance, The Toxic War on Masculinity, Nancy Piercy. And uh, okay, just so you know. Um, let's. I, I, I mentioned a, uh, a different question I was going to deal with. Let's, let's go to, it looks like Fayanne, F-E-A-N-N-E, Mattingly. Uh, let's deal with her question because I had a conversation with someone just recently about this issue, and I want to try to put it all in perspective in the next 10 minutes that we have left. Let's hear what she has to say. Hi, Greg and Amy. Uh, my name is Fayanne from Indianapolis, and my question is, what are your thoughts on churches who do more quote-unquote seeker-friendly sermons um, and just focus on presenting the gospel versus um, expository preaching that get provides more depth and um, more cultural relevant more culturally relevant thank you for your time uh, you're welcome, Fayanne, and uh, I, I do have some thoughts on this. And I, I had a revelation once, sitting here in this office, it was probably six or seven years ago, and there was somebody who was visiting from a large seeker church in, uh, in Southern California. I, I don't want to cast aspersions, so I won't mention it, but it's very large and very uh, well-known, okay? And, um, and I and what he said was, he was on the the staff there, and what he said was, we are known as a secret church, but the problem is, is that if people who are actually seeking the truth come to our service, they're not going to get it. They're going to have to go to a special Bible study that is geared for genuine seekers. Instead, they're going to get something that is kind of made to order for the person to help them in their lives, or something to that effect. And when he described this to me, um, all of these, th this all, something fell into place for me, and I began to see that there are actually three categories of churches here. All right, that that relate to the broadly to the seeker, um, or broadly might carry the seeker label. All right. And so I'm going to characterize the first as a seeker-friendly church, but I'm going to be very careful about how I define that. I think a seeker-friendly church is a church that is friendly to seekers. Um, that is, they are committed to doing the work a church is meant to do when the congregation gathers, and what the church is meant to do, I think, biblically, is to feed the disciples <laughs> and build them up for the works of service so they can go out to the world and, and do their thing, be a light to the world, etc., etc. Now, when you're feeding your flock, you're going to have visitors. People are going to come in, and they're kicking tires, and they're trying to figure out what's going on, and I think it's entirely appropriate to be sensitive to visitors that may be seekers. What does that look like? That means you make sure they have a place to park, you have a place for their, to put their kids, you know, so they can come and focus on what's being said. But, and you, you should also be careful about the language you're using, so you're not so religious in your lingo, they don't know what you're talking about. 
you are being sensitive to the fact that there are seekers who are not Christians but interested in your audience, okay? And in fact, when I've taught at my own church, I have said oftentimes, I said, if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, I'm glad you're here. I'm not here to convert you today. I hope I annoy you in a good way by telling you something that gets you thinking about Christianity, but I tell them I'm not here for you. My remarks are going to be directed at the Christians here, and maybe there's some things that you'll benefit from. So the rest of the time now I want to talk to the Christians. Why do I say that? Because I'm not there to talk to non-believers, I'm there to talk to believers. But I'm being sensitive to the facts that there are non-believers in the audience. Okay, that's what I call a seeker-sensitive church. But, uh, Fayon, what you just described is not what I would consider a seeker-friendly church. It's actually a second category, and I call it a seeker-centered church. The problem with a seeker-centered church, and this is the way you characterize it, where the sermons uh, focus on preaching the gospel rather than expository preaching, for example, and getting into the thicker stuff, is that that um, this is really functioning now not as a church feeding disciples, but as an evangelistic organization. Bring your friends here, and we'll give them the simple gospel. Well, the Christians already know the simple gospel, or the basic gospel stuff. There's nothing wrong with being reminded of it, but the idea of the church is to build the body of Christ up, and not just keep feeding the pablum that got them rescued in the first place. Seekers need the pablum, that's great. And probably in some, you know, way during the message, you're, they'll get enough information that they can become Christians if they choose to, if they want to believe, if that's where they're headed, okay? But they're not to be the center. What happens if they're the center and you keep preaching gospel messages on a simple basis is you might get more people that become Christian, but what about the people that you're supposed to be serving that already are Christians? They're, they're not going to get fed, and then they're going to go somewhere else. And we all know these churches that are feeding milk all the time, and people just get worn out. I say, okay, i got to find—I want some meat here. And that's what should be being provided. You're not ignoring the seekers, but you're not centered on the seekers. The church, the ecclesia, the called-out ones, they're called out from the world, and they call out in a weekly basis to meet together to get built up so they can go back into the world, into the agora, the marketplace, and do the work that God wants them to do. They can only do that if they're built up in the church, and if you're focused on the seeker, then you're not focusing on the Christian. Okay, what happens when you are really seeker-centered, and you really want to, don't want to do anything to scare the outsider away, you begin to modify your message, and you don't talk about sin, because that might chase some people away, and you don't talk about abortion, because that would make some people angry. You don't talk about homosexuality. Now you don't talk about gender stuff. You don't apply the Bible to the issues of the day so that the Christians get the truth and know how to live out their Christian world in the context of the world that they actually live in. You give a different kind of pablum. You tell them how to have good relationships and how to raise your kids and how to be good to your wife, and none of those are bad things. But what has happened in this third instance, as the church has gone from maybe seeker-sensitive in a good way to being seeker-centered, and now it's become a consumer church. The point now is to meet the consumer needs of the individuals coming in and find out what they want and give them what they want so they stay in your church. But that's not what the church is meant to be. But that is what this other church had become. 
the one I talked about at the at the beginning, the one who the pastor who was part of the church told me about. He said, now if you come to our church, you can't get what you're seeking for. You have to go to a different special service just for seekers. Isn't that amazing? Seeker-sensitive churches shift, and that's a good thing, at least the way I characterized it, shift to becoming seeker-sensitive church. I'm sorry, seeker-centered churches. Whoa, that's all evangelism. Well, okay, nothing wrong with that in one sense, except that the believers are not being addressed. It's the unbelievers that continually are addressed, and you're trying to get them saved. Well, now your emphasis is evangelism, not discipleship, building out the body of Christ. And if you're not careful, you will drift from a seeker-centered to a consumerist church where you give people what they want so they don't leave. And now you're not doing anything really substantial, at least what the church is supposed to be doing. So that's uh, Fayanne. I hope that characterization is helpful for you. All right, that's it for our show, friends. Thank you for being part of it. I'm Greg Kokel for Standard Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.